Welcome to Night Night Bitch. I'm your host, Molly, your guide to awe-inspiring texts read by me or in the voices of their original creators. Please know I don't own any of this content. It's all freely accessible online and duly cited in my episode descriptions for your reference. This podcast is a creative outlet for me, so I don't update it as regularly. But if you'd like to subscribe to my other podcast, Back From The Borderline, I release two thought-provoking episodes each week. And now, let's dive into the episode. Welcome. It's time to rest your weary mind, unwind, escape the matrix, and explore the arcane. We live in a culture that is rapidly losing its grasp on myth and meaning. Exploration of philosophy, depth psychology, esotericism, the occult, myth, and mysticism have been proven to inspire awe. Such experiences of daily awe have been shown to be psychologically beneficial and aid in the potential expansion of consciousness. Each time we're here together, I'll select a reading, article, or sample audio that could increase your opportunity for such experiences. While you listen, you might fall asleep. You might wake up. You might do both. Maybe finding the perfect balance between awake and dreaming is exactly what you always needed. Night night bitch. This is the exercise for your own development process designed by you. You should be hearing my voice in your right ear. Remember the purpose, your purpose for this exercise. And begin your pre-preparation process now. The affirmation beginning, I am more than my physical body. the wisdom of the knowing ones. Today we will be reading chapter 4, Meditation Symbols in Christian and Gnostic Mysticism. In the background you will be hearing two different solfeggio frequencies. The first is 396 hertz. This tone is known to aid in the healing of trauma. It's also said to help individuals find the motivation to embrace change while also promoting restful sleep. Also included is 417 hertz, which is known as the tone of undoing and facilitating change. So without further ado, let's dive in to chapter 4. There is reason to believe that the caravan routes between China and the Roman Empire were established before or about the time of the Christian era, which means that a tremendous territory of previously remote lands 
came under the direct contemplation of Western travelers, merchants, and for that matter, escaping heretics. It was a time when heresy was abroad in the land almost everywhere, and there were tremendous migrations of people to escape social, political, or religious persecution. The Greek culture was already decadent at the beginning of the Christian era, but there were still remnants of the old Platonic, Pythagorean, and Aristotelian schools. Egyptian culture had come under the adversities of the Ptolemies and was on the brink of extinction. Syrian life and Jewish philosophy were under the yoke of the Roman Empire. The ancient traditions of Israel were disrupted and the people were in great distress. The same type of situation was occurring in the Far East. At the beginning of the Christian era, there were major philosophical and religious changes occurring in China. At this time, a motion from India reached the Chinese and established the great vehicle of Buddhism. This great vehicle began somewhere in Central Asia, probably in the northern part of India or Nepal, and moved in both directions, east and west, to change the philosophic history of the world. Also, the last of the Zoroastrians had already departed, and the fire worship of this Parsi sect was under challenge. However, the Romans had brought back Persian philosophy with them from their travels and conquests, carrying this philosophy as far as Great Britain. There are Persian religious monuments in England put there by the Romans. The famous University of Oxford is named for one of them. There was a great mingling, mixing, blending, and confusing of faiths, which continued until the latter part of the 3rd or early 4th century AD. At this time, the power of the rising church was strong enough to impress its purposes upon governments and political entities. After the allegiance which Christianity made with the East and Roman Empire under Constantine the Great, the smaller groups gradually dropped back again into retirement. This was the period of the Neoplatonists, the Hermetic philosophers, the Gnostics, the Syrian mysteries, the Essenes, the Osirian rites, the Therapeutae, the Aramites, and large groups of small religious sects, most of them mystical, philosophical, and idealistic. These sects have left their impression upon our thinking, although the various beliefs themselves have more or less faded from our conscious awareness. Actually, also a series of discoveries made about 50 years ago including the Dead Sea Scrolls and the famous Gnostic Library of Nagamadi have given us some further insight on these mysterious doings, including the Essenes, the Nazarenes, 
and the Gnostics. The discovery of both the Old Testament records and the Gnostic library have been rather disappointing. We've not learned as much as we hope to learn. Most of the questions that we hope to answer have not been answered, and while there are certain advantages that have been gained through these discoveries, the general picture of the time has not been clarified by them. One of the most important reactions has been in connection with the Gnostics. The great book of the Savior, part of which has been translated under the title The Pistis Sophia, was dated to the 8th or 7th century and believed to be a late apocryphal work. However, the Nagamadi discoveries in central Egypt clearly indicate and definitely prove that it was in circulation as early as the 3rd century and probably earlier. Thus, what appeared to be for a time a sort of an apocryphal invention has been gradually established as a bona fide sacred book. All of these points are intriguing and have a bearing on our subject. The story is quite long and complicated, but we'll try to clarify it as much as possible. We must realize that the Near East and North Africa were in those days important caravan posts. They marked the various stations and finally the ends of the caravans that moved from China to Rome. In the Near East, the caravan routes were the great arteries of communication. Along the caravan routes came the mingling of philosophical, scientific, political, and religious beliefs that were to bring a major change to the political history of Europe. This change included the gradual recognition of a wider world of religious insight than had previously been suspected. Two groups of people stand out strongly in connection with this new reaction toward religion. One was the Gnostics, and the other was the Neoplatonists. Both of these became aware in the beginning of the Christian era that there was one essential story underneath or hidden within practically all of the religious traditions of mankind. Perhaps Max Muller, the great German Orientalist, was not less than correct when he said that there was never a false religion unless a child is a false man. Thus, at the beginning of the Christian era, we had for the first time the opportunity for widely separated religious and philosophical insights to meet, mingle, and exchange. While it's true that most of the merchants along the caravan routes were simply businessmen, their routes and their various protections for their cargoes also provided safety for the intellectual who wished to hitch a ride along with them around their routes. And many did, some coming as far as from India and China to study in the academies of Greece. Also, the Grecians sent their disciples as students to the Far East. 
This interchange gradually led to a kind of mystic Kabbalism, to the rise of a comparative religion perspective. People were no longer simply this faith or that faith, they discovered a vast body of common symbols which they all held sacred. They discovered that practically every religion that met on the pathways along the silk routes had the same basic belief in astrology. The idea that the heavens, the stars, and the planets were deities. They also had similar calendars. The Chinese were calculating eclipses and things of this kind at a very early date. It was gradually recognized likewise that in India there were great institutions of learning, like at the University of Nalanda with a student body of over 25,000, which had observatories, laboratories, and many other scientific structures leading all the known knowledge of the world. There was no idea in the Western world that such things existed until the news of them drifted along these caravan routes. This communication of knowledge resulted in the rise of Ephesus, Antioch, Alexandria, and to a measure by reaction in the rise of schools of comparative thinking in Rome and in Athens, created for the purpose of uniting beliefs rather than dividing them. As might be expected, the knowledge that did come along the caravan routes was not complete, nor did it necessarily imply the deepest interpretations of symbols, allegories, and rituals. However, it did definitely indicate a trend, and it showed the common ground of human idealism. Most of all, it attacked the literal translation of sacred writings. It became obvious that the literal jot and tittle meanings were not adequate, and that all the ancient scriptural works were symbolical, and that they had meanings that were very deep and very real. These meanings were perhaps best discovered by the study of comparative religions, for that which was concealed in one would more broadly be revealed in another. Intimations that could not be completed in one were continued to completion in others. Our book of Revelation is a good example of one of these mystical compilations. Based upon the mingling of religions and philosophies in the area of the Isle of Patmos, John is said to have written the book which was the groundwork and the center of the great Phrygian rites which at that time were very powerful in the forming of religious thinking. There's a parallel we can draw immediately, one that is useful, helpful, and perhaps a little inspiring to this generation. 2,000 years ago, a group of minority spiritual movements really discovered the identity of religious beliefs. They discovered that under various names, and various symbols, the same ideas, ethics, and moralities were universally disseminated. 
they also made another important discovery, namely that all these religions had been divided into two sections. One of which was for the public and the other essentially an esoteric or mystical tradition for a few who were willing to consecrate their lives through a process of internal enlightenment. For the many, there was obedience to the forms and letters of religious law. For the few, there was an insight into the deeper meanings of these things by means of which orthodoxies were transformed into great spiritual systems. An important point to consider is that at this time, the beginning of the first century, Greek religion was decadent and its theology was falling apart. The exponents of its inner rites were gone, its mysteries were profaned by conquerors, and its political life was under the control of Rome. Rome was perfectly willing to permit the Greeks to philosophize to their heart's content as long as they paid their taxes, but it was not a time in which the deeper issues of the Greek thinkers had any substantial following. In the Egyptian area, the rites of Osiris had become the dominant philosophical teaching. These rites were also decadent and would soon collapse with the fall of Cleopatra, the last of the Ptolemies. Actually, almost every religion had fallen away from its deeper meaning and become a formal, ceremonial, ritualistic structure for which the keys were no longer available. Then, about the beginning of the Christian era, the flame rose again. There was a flash of light, and throughout the world this flash consisted primarily of the discovery of a mystical tradition concealed within the structure of formal philosophies and religions. There is an interesting problem here having psychological value. The question arises, where did this flame come from? Was it a world uprising? A restoration of rites and ceremonies brought together coincidentally, perhaps, but by geographical contacts, historical circumstances, and a few brilliant leaders? Or did this flame originally flame up with the human being himself. I'm inclined to think that the light that brought these changes came basically from within a humanity in a crisis. A crisis that was political, cultural, and social just as well as it was religious. The great structures of the world's cultures and civilizations were falling. Tyranny was abroad in the land. Religion had come on evil times, and most of the priesthood had become corrupt. In this emergency, we have a series of reactions from within human beings themselves. A reaction of this kind was responsible for the rise of the Essene sect in the Holy Land. It was a prayer to God in which the individual offered his own life as a proof of his sincerity. 
all through the world about this time, prayers of this kind seem to have arisen from the people. These people were coming from disillusioned persons who had become convinced of the lack of worth of the systems that they were following, philosophical, educational, political, cultural, and religious. They therefore asked, as Muhammad later asked, in the cave on Mount Hiva, if it was the will of God for the religion of the patriarchs to be rediscovered by mankind, if the faith that was in the nature of deity itself should be allowed to shine into the structure of creation. I think it was the repentance, the piety, the urgency and desperation of the people forlorn in the sense of lacking inner stability, forlorn through the loss of faith in the things that had previously been important, that led to this great change in the religious life of mankind. I think it's well described by Cineasis, the Christian bishop of Alexandria, when he pointed out that these new religious ideals came with a repentance in which thousands of persons, disillusioned, hurt, lonely, tired, and abused in one way or another, cried out collectively for a solution to their problem. Among these people were some, maybe not a majority, but some, who came back with the answer, the same answer that we have today. Namely, that basically the individual is in trouble because he is wrong. He is in trouble because he has broken the simple, eternal rules of life. There came about a rise of a religious emphasis based upon obedience to the divine will and the means of achieving this obedience or this willingness to obey was through a philosophical approach to the structure of nature in the effort to discover the god of nature. Thus, a great system of searching for deity by philosophical means, religious dedication, and certain esoteric practices gained worldwide attention. What we call today oriental meditation systems, such as yoga, were available in Europe at that time. The yogic philosophy and the yogic disciplines were in use as early as the time of Pythagoras and were certainly part of the Neoplatonic mysticism, though not named or discussed under such terminology. The Gnostics were more open on this point. The Gnostic philosophy is all based upon a secret discipline for the release of man's internal content by means of which he can become aware of his place in the divine plan of beings. The Gnostic believed that salvation must be earned. They believed that the individual must make a science out of his own redemption and that the redemption of the individual is the great science, the final end of all scientific searching. They did not have the laboratories or the technical facilities that we have today, but only certain basic means of exploring the world of causes. They had first, of course, the traditions of their people and the religious revelations of antiquity. These revelations, many of which were very old by the beginning of the Christian era, 
seemed to contain some tremendous archetypal ideas. The mystics gradually realized that the real source of these scriptural revelations was the mystical experience. These revelations were internal experiences of enlightened human beings which made possible the eye perception of the divine truths of life. Out of this arose another situation which ultimately brought most of the religious systems into trouble and this was that mysticism, because it is entirely an internal individual experience, worked a serious hardship upon formal religious organizations. If man's search for truth is inward to his spiritual core within himself, then formalized religions, with their vast followings, become comparatively inconsequential. The religious organizations were actually only gateways. Individuals who were willing to keep the outer rules of the faith were then entitled to explore its inner mysteries. But the outer structure was simply a preparatory structure. The temple, the mosque, the shrine, the synagogue, and the pagoda are all gates toward a mystical experience, and the true religion has never been captured within the structure of any material building or organization. These organizations simply prepare the individual for the experience of religion if he's so inclined. This was the reason for the pageantry of the Greek mysteries in which the candidate for initiation beheld a sacred pageantry which meant to him exactly according to the meaning that he could discover for himself. He had to experience the need for meaning and something within himself had to come forth and give him the answer. The state and the ancient religious institutions would not provide him with an answer because they held it to be the essential part of true religion that the individual release his own internal spiritual content. Unless he was able to do this and unless he was able to earn the right to do this, he was not entitled to the esoteric doctrines. In the early development of the Christian church, we also find the constant use of the mystery drama. The mass is the result of ritual. The Catholic mass itself, which is perhaps the greatest single element in Christian religious mysticism, is a ritual. Very often, this is put into visible form in a magnificent structure with magnificent altar instruments and materials, fine stained glass windows, high vaulted gothic ceilings, and a magnificent mask in music, such as one of the masses of Palestrina. These accoutrements evoked a tremendous solemnity, and like the high mass of St. Peter's in Rome became a symbol of the heavenly host and assembly. Yet this can be seen, and to most people who see it, regardless of their religion, it's impressive, and deeply so. It brings with it a sense of deep, inner depth and meaning. The individual is silenced by the spectacle of a great religious rite. 
yet it does not necessarily follow that as a result of this experience, he's led on to greater mystical depths. It has to be his own decision, his own ability, and also that which within himself accepts the mystery of the mass must explain it and bring it to understandable and useful form. The organizations to which we referred earlier in this talk formed a congregation, and together they saw the body of religion as a great religious mass or spectacle. They suddenly recognized a universal temple in which nature, God, and men unite in a glorification of the eternal. They recognized that in some mysterious way, man is bound to this infinite pattern and that there is tremendous fulfillment. The only actual eternal fulfillment that will come to those who are able to open the veil and behold face to face the mystery of the infinite itself. The Gnostics and Neoplatonists didn't get along well together, heretics seldom do, but both had the same basic conviction that there was a way that led back to the divine. The Neoplatonists followed largely the Greek theory of religion with strong philosophical emphasis. The Gnostics, on the other hand, followed Assyrian mystic doctrines and perhaps the mysterious doctrines of Central Asia. All these groups, including many we can't pause to name, were indebted, however, to certain contemporary available structures, and the Gnostics were indebted strongly to Egyptian religion. In fact, the Gnostics possibly give us the only clue to the inner meaning of Egyptian faith. We've seen the magnificent monuments, the great temples, the illuminated papyri, and the miniature relics from the religious art of Egypt but we have practically no understanding or insight concerning the true spiritual convictions of the Egyptian people. It is inconceivable and impossible that any nation should have endured as Egypt did for thousands of years without tremendous spiritual potential. Yet this potential has been lost to us with the loss of most of the keys to the hieroglyphic writings and we're not even sure that the Rosetta Stone was the true key to all the Egyptian literature. In any event, we do not exactly know what moved the Egyptian as a mystical person within himself. The nearest we have to such a concept is in the case of Akhenaton, the great Egyptian mystic heretic. From the gnosis we gain, the momentum which would cause us to contemplate all religious meaning, all religious art, all religious architecture, all the nature with its natural wonders and its natural architecture in terms of a key, a secret means of understanding them. Everything visible is simply the long shadow of an invisible principle. Everything that's a letter of the law is merely the reflection of the spirit of the law. And we should never forget that the letter of the law killeth, but the spirit of the law giveth life. Forms, in a sense, kill consciousness or kill man's native curiosity. He sees the form and touches it. 
his exploration ends there. If it goes further, he merely analyzes the artist who painted or carved the figure, the time it was done, the locale where it first appeared, its historical significance, and what sacred figure it appears to represent. There's no actual penetration. It's all surface consideration. Therefore, there was a reason probably to recognize the tremendous need for a revitalization of a religious situation that had gone from bad to worse. And out of this effort to revitalize religion came a series of beliefs that were to survive and have a profound effect upon modern man. One of these, of course, was astrology, derived from Chaldea and Babylonia, practiced throughout the whole world and brought back again into the Mediterranean complex of cultures largely through the Gnostics. The Gnostics were the perpetuators of the Egyptian and Babylonian magic, or stargazers. Another mysterious thing which occurred about this time was the rise of Hermetic philosophy. Hermetic philosophy took its name from the deity Hermes. Who this deity was or what human being he may have been a perpetuation of remains unknown. From Hermetic philosophy developed in the middle period of Egyptian transition came alchemy. The alchemical and hermetic speculations and the divine pymander or the ship of man, which is the great hermetic text, are contemporary with the beginning of Gnosticism. About the first century, two great Jewish scholars, Rabbi Akiba and Rabbi Simeon ben Jokai, have the great impetus to Kabbalism. Where these systems actually originated, nobody knows. But the Kabbalah, alchemy, astrology, and ceremonial magic all had the purpose to break through the symbolic surface of religion and discover its spiritual content, to transform religion from a faith to a vital life force to be available to all people. The end of this force was the redemption of the individual, redemption in this case being the full unfoldment of the divine potential locked within him so that man truly would become a godlike the father who created him, or like the mother who created her. Thus the search for the science of divinity, as it might apply to the individual, suddenly took over and there was this wonderful motion toward spiritualization. In the beginning of this motion, there was the early Syrian Christian sect, which was probably the extension of the Essene order about which a little has been learned from the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Essenes were probably the pre-Christian Christians for the history of the Essenes ends the day the history of Christianity begins. They probably were very closely involved. In fact, there's much to indicate that Jesus, or Yeshua, the historical man, was either an Essene or a Nazarite. In any event, the Essene was also searching for a mystical union. Later, the whirling dervishes and the Sufis in the East had the same feelings and aspirations. The word union 
which we find so much in Near Eastern religious philosophy, derives from the original Sanskrit form, yoga, which simply means union, to remove the interval between man and deity. This is removed by the human being himself, redeeming the lesser nature of his own being and restoring it to its luminosity. Also, we find that in the Gnostic, Kabbalistic, and many other of these systems, the figure of Jesus is gradually metamorphosed. It's transformed from a historical person to a symbol of the divine power of intercession by means of which the human being can attain deity. This is to say that the messianic offering, the messianic martyrdom, is the bridge across which man must pass in order to attain union with the Father. Gradually, therefore, the Kabbalists and the Gnostics and the Neoplatonists began to transform the first literal image of the historical Jesus and pronounce it in place the mystical Christ. Saint Paul of Tarsus, whose city was on the caravan route of Asia, seemingly in some way picked up this concept because he'd been initiated into the mysteries, probably at Ephesus, where the great mother of the Ephesians was worshipped. He had gained this insight of the transformation of the Redeemer from a historical, personal teacher into the source of the redeeming power of God. Out of the union of a purified human being and the defense of the Soter, as it was called by the Gnostics, the heavenly Messiah used Jesus as the living bridge to bring all souls to redemption. This was the Gnostic entry point, and we find from that time on, all of these religions began to verge towards an esotericism and a ritual held in private. In the Pistis Sophia, Jesus is reported to have instructed in esoteric matters those closest to him. The discourses and the instructions are preserved in this book, which is no longer to be held as a late creation, but must be believed to have been written not later than the third century, possibly earlier. Here we have Gnosticism transforming almost all of the New Testament into a mystical testimony of the secret of human regeneration, and here we have all of the instruction necessary to open the keys of the Christian dispensation. That this concept also followed into the papacy cannot be entirely denied, because the papal arms consist of the two crossed keys, of which the silver key is the key to the Old Testament, and the gold key is the key to the New Testament. St. Peter is said to have carried the golden key, but what did he ever unlock? This is the question that remains. What has been unlocked? How has the key been turned in the lock? There seems to be no answer. It's assumed that there is a mystery. Even the church admits it. But what this mystery is and how it is to be solved has not descended to us, at least publicly. 
In the first century, a desperate effort was made by a number of minority groups of devout people to unlock the mystery of salvation and to reinterpret these older theologies in the terms of a new concept. The attempt was made to bring religions along the caravan routes into a uniformity of beliefs by explaining to each how the others interpreted the same mysteries to prove that they were all right and therefore to establish the need for an art or science of comparative interpretations. What was implied was that regardless of names and dates and places and allegories, all were worshipping the same principle because there had never been but one principle and never could be. Of course, this created instead of a united religious world, a great cycle of religious dissension. Each individual was reluctant to accept the fact that other faiths were as true as his own. He was also reluctant to see his own faith interpreted in terms of other beliefs that he had been taught to believe were false or sinful or heretical. There arose a kind of religious dedication or religious loyalty by which those of various faiths held tenaciously to their own belief in the name of God, rejecting all other systems as heathen or works of the devil. In order to protect oneself from the works of the devil, it was necessary to cling tighter and tighter to orthodoxy. This is the reason why the great first century motion had practically no enduring physical consequences the Gnostics were persecuted out of existence by the end of the third century. Most of their art was destroyed. All we have left are a few engraved stones, gems, on which their symbols were carved. Some of these were preserved simply from a value standpoint, and fortunately, some have survived for our time. The same fate to a large degree followed another heresy that arose about the same time, and that was the Manichean heresy, which was broadly the entire Eastern motion of Christianity. We have very abundant records of Christianity and its effect on Europe, its westward motion to the United States, and finally through colonization and conversion, its practical journey around the world. What seems to be obscure is the early Eastern motion of Christianity. Christianity not only moved from Syria to Rome and Athens and then forward into the West, but it also moved eastward along the caravan routes. Eastern Christianity reached India, Persia, China, and there's evidence that early Christian missionaries of the Eastern Church finally reached as far as Japan. The reason why these have been ignored for the most part is because they were heretics. The Christians who made this great Eastern pilgrimage were followers of an excommunicated patriarch, Nestorius. At the time of the council in which he was declared heretical, he was not allowed to even speak in his own defense. The Roman emperor who presided over the council declared it invalid because he was completely unfair and unreasonable but that had no effect on the state of Nestorius himself. To escape persecution, Nestorius and his followers moved east, constituting a tremendous line of Eastern mystical Christianity, which mingled with Brahmanism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, and all of the other faiths of the Far East, 
ultimately modifying all of them. We have a tremendous motion starting here, which brings us perhaps to the core of our problem. What were the principal symbols which were used in the meditative disciplines of these sects of which the Gnostics and early Christian mysteries are so typical? We all know the common symbolism of Christianity in which the cross, though not the earliest, the earliest probably being the fish, is the most prominent symbol. We also know that the Gnostics had gems inscribed with their principal deities, most of which were borrowed from Egypt. They had Greek inscriptions replete with mystical words, some of which appear later in the Kabbalah and ceremonial magic of the Middle Ages. The grimoires and the so-called Keys of Solomon probably originate from the Gnostic system. The Gnostics also had some diagrams, some of which have survived, in which the universe itself becomes a great mandala symbol. Nearly all the Gnostic mandalas took the form of two interpenetrating circles of orbits as though the old idea of our solar system with its planetary orbits was superimposed by another with the outer ring of one at the center of the other, creating a series of overlapping circles. This was the principal emblem of the Gnosis. The Gnostics were emanationists and their philosophy of life was built upon the Mithriatic ladder of the Persians and Greeks, Homer's Cave of the Nymphs, and the mysterious symbolic ladder that's nearly always shown leaning against the cross at the time of the bringing of the body of Christ down from the cross. The ladder was a Gnostic symbol and also the Christian symbol of aspiration. The ladder in Egypt was tipped so that the top of it pointed toward the constellation of the seven stars. The Great Bear was the initiation into the mysteries and of the heavenly ascent of the human soul. This was the ladder described in the vision of Jacob in which the angels descended and ascended. Gnostic symbols of emanationism depicted the manner in which existence came to be, the polarization of two forces, spirit and matter. Spirit and matter were originally one, and in essence, substance and eternal truth remain forever one. Spirit is the highest state of matter. Matter is the lowest state of spirit. This was a basic Gnostic concept, later to be found in early writings of the Rosicrucians. The latter symbolized a pattern of levels of emanations from the divine power coming down in waves one after another like the tides along the shore, bringing divine light down into the abyss of matter, as Jacob Bohem called it. Along with this concept at the same time from below, another tide was rising, which was matter being refined, regenerated, purified, and descending so that finally all forms reached the point where they could mingle with the descending powers of God. Emanationism was this process of the divine descending in waves of emanation and the material ascending in waves of emanation until they met, the meeting point being the spiritual constitution of man. Man was placed in the middle place, and in him there was a mingling of the natural and the divine. The human being was, therefore, the living bridge between nature and God placed there 
not necessarily only that he might cross this bridge, but that through him all forms lesser than himself could cross. All of nature finding its way to God is destined to pass through the consciousness of man himself or that level of consciousness which man possesses. The latter of emanationism also became the physical geographic symbol of the universal structure, clearly indicating the morality of Gnosticism. Gnosticism taught that man's growth was a sequential unfoldment of his inner life on ascending levels. From below upward, he had through regeneration to reach the central point of himself, which was the luminosity of his own soul. It was in his own soul that his ascending body met his descending spirit, and this union produced the divine being within him. As Paul says, the Christ in you, the hope of glory. It was the regeneration of the body making possible the descent of the spirit that finally resulted in what the alchemists called the rose diamond, the philosopher's stone, the mystery of the universal medicine, and the transmutation of all base substances into their purest spiritual essences. These were different terms with essentially the same meaning. In Christianity, we must recognize that the most valid archetypal meditation form that we have is the architectural form. The architectural form produced the great churches of early Europe and the great symbolic monuments, which were to remain as the wonders of the world. Nothing has been done equal to them in any part of the world. These churches were mathematically developed according to the patterns of Pythagoras. They were symbolically, vibrationally correct, and were also intended to represent the emanation concept to the Gnostics. It was built into them, being the place where the divine and the human met. The divine was represented in these churches by the great mandala window, the rose window, in which the interior of the church was lit by one light. The sun, broken up upon the very colored patterns of the same glass segments. Thus, it would appear that one light became a thing of exquisite beauty in the shining through of the handicraft of man. The final archetype of the church, or the ecclesia, was the heavenly palace. It was the universe itself regarded as a great structure a structure in which all things lived and existed to honor their creator. In the Gnostic symbolism, the Egyptian deities were used for very much the same purpose. One of the transmissions that we have in practically all parts of the world is the transmission of Isis, the great mother of mysteries. Isis is, and has always been, the emblem of the esoteric tradition itself. Isis is the ever-fruitful mother of wisdom, the Virgin Sophia of the Kabbalists and the Troubadours. She is Mahamaya, the mother of Buddha, for both Maya and Mary have the same meaning, water. She is the water of life, 
most of all. She is the symbol of the mystical disciple, which must give birth to the hero of the world, to the Redeemer. Isis was the mother of Horus, who avenged the murder of his father, Osiris. In all these religions, the adept, the mystic, the enlightened and the initiated one was born from the mystery of the Great Mother, the womb of the universal spiritual mystery. Another symbol that we find carried from one religion to another is the cross. The cross is one of the most universal emblems of all time. It was symbolic not only of the death of Christ, but this being actually a comparatively late usage, but most of all, it was the Pythagorean symbol of equilibrium. It was the symbol of balance, the symbol of matter. It was the symbol of the material world on which all the saviors of time have been crucified. It represents the human body within which the soul is crucified also the directions of space, and therefore the measurements of the mundane world. The cross was the basis of the shape of the church. In ancient Egypt, the cross was a symbol of water because water was life, the water of baptism and the water of righteousness. Water was measured in the Nile by the Nilometer, which became the Egyptian cross. Wherever the water came at the proper season, the crops were assured, otherwise there was desolation in the land. Because it was water, it was life, and because it was life, it was forgiveness. Because it was forgiveness, it was shown coming from the mouth of the Pharaoh when he forgave his enemies. It's interesting that the Pharaoh should be represented as doing good to those who have despitefully used him forgiving criminals or forgiving those who had injured his country. Where this was done, the sign of the cross is shown coming out of his mouth, and these representations go back to 2 and 3000 BC. Another very famous symbol was the Ship of Salvation, which is found in all faiths. The so-called Fisherman's Ring, the ring of the papacy, shows Peter in a little boat. The nave of the church is simply the ship of salvation, the word nave being also the basis of naval or navy is the symbol of the boat and all the ancient churches had the nave in that form. This is the ship of salvation of Asia upon which souls are carried across the sea of life and death to come finally to the blessed land of protection at the end of their journey. In the Asiatic symbolism of the Bodhisattvas and Buddhas are the crews that sail the ship. And in the West, the priests, deacons, and acolytes were regarded as the crew of the ship. The ship is a very common symbol because it also crosses the most mysterious of all elements, water. Always the land of the blessed is beyond water and the souls in the old hymn are coming to the end of mortal life as one more river to cross. The Jordan, the river Styx, and the Milky Way are all symbols having the same essential meaning. By contemplating certain symbols, the individual, with the aid of basic insider knowledge, is able to discover their universal meaning. 
it's good to take both the Neoplatonic and Gnostic point of view on this and recognize the tremendous importance of research inward by various means to the discovery of the secret of the inner self. We should also try to understand the meaning of the old writer who said the whole problem. What is man that thou art mindful of him? What are we? Why are we? Who are we? Where are we? These are vital questions that have passed for ages unanswered, mostly on the ground that they can't be answered and that there's no way to solve these questions. The Gnostic answer was what they called the Aeonology. The aeons were levels of the rungs of the ladder leading from death to eternal life. They had a way of ascending the ladder through internal meditation and insight. The individual learned to experience level by level the inner nature of himself. The Gnostic gems are symbols of man. The Abraxas symbol with the human body and the rooster's head was the symbol of the human heart and therefore also the symbol of the sun. These people used Pythagorean numerology. They also used almost every form of ancient learning in an effort to portray to the mind of the believer the structure of the mystery of himself. It was not a problem that could easily be accomplished, but it was a problem of internal accomplishment. Also, as they pointed out, this inner road is not competitive. The individual searching for truth within himself is actually not in conflict with any religion, nor is he in conflict with the faith he may nominally belong to. No one but himself can ever know about this searching. If the searching is done properly, it is devoutly religious and can be done in the name of any religion in the world. For all religions have the same quest, as it was called in the age of chivalry, when the orders of the quest came into existence. In the quest for the over-self, the searching for the reality and the determination to penetrate every symbol to find the essence behind it, the individual can discover how he himself can be his own physician and redeem his own nature. He is a priest before the altar of his own soul. And he too has the right to direct inward communication with the Father who abideth within him. The purpose of the mystery rituals was to awaken to this. In dreams, we have symbolic pictures in which some attitudes of our own have become embodied in archetypal forms and we see them again. Many of these dreams are capable of interpretation. The great dream is the dream of life itself, and this is also capable of being interpreted. Life has meaning according to the dreamer. Dreams have different meanings according to those who dream them, but there's also always meaning. And this meaning has always to do with the level of development the person has reached, the problems that beset him, the insecurities that he experiences or the fears that dominate his mind and emotions. These things can be discovered, and the dream can be made meaningful. The dream of heaven, the great spiritual dream of man, can also be interpreted. This dream, 
which was held in common by hundreds of millions of people, is a dream founded upon an archetypal reality within man himself. The kingdom of heaven is within you, and this kingdom is discovered by the journey inward. This journey inward is the experience of the journey through eons or through the orbits of the world, as described in Dante's Inferno and Milton's Paradise Lost. Finally, the whole thing centers on an internal approach to the meaning of symbols. For the average Christian, probably the best symbol to start with is the cross. No longer conceived as a symbol of death or a symbol of martyrdom, the cross is considered in terms of cosmogony, in terms of the world, and in terms of the psychic life of man. The cross is made up of the vertical line of descending life and the horizontal line of deceptive matter. Here, positive and negative meet. Here, the great corners of the directions of space meet. Here, the great fixed signs of the zodiac meet. In the cross, we also have the sign of addiction, the plus factor forever present. Gradually transform the cross into a psychological study of your own inner resources. Find out what you can dig out of yourself from it and what you can experience from it. By combining the experience with the Christian mystery of the experience of the crucifixion, the crucifixion will gradually unfold into the cosmic mystery that it is supposed to represent. It will begin to give insight into the universal significance of a faith transcending infinitely all denominations and levels of interpretation until eventually the entire mystery of the cosmos can be beheld. To do this is to have ascended the Gnostic ladder and the levels of the Neoplatonic mysticism. The Crux Ansanta, or the Ankh cross of Egypt, is different from the Christian cross in that it has a loop instead of an upper bar. Also, the cross of the Eastern Church is somewhat different from the Western Church. There are reasons for all these variations. There are reasons for the regalia, rituals, and the various sacraments. These reasons all go back to a great universal purpose. Man, in losing the sense of this universal meaning, has left himself with superficial meanings that do not satisfy him. Today, one of the problems that's breaking up so many churches is the problem of interpretation. The priest or the clergyman does not feel that he can continue to teach the rather trite orthodoxies without questioning and seeking for deeper meaning. Thus, he feels his only recourse is to get out and begin the quest on his own. If he knew the substance of these symbols and the whole story behind them, he would not have to leave. He would find so much more than he could ever hope to find on the outside. But while the outside is free for exploration and the inside is tied with artificial knots and stoppages, he will, in many instances, have to leave his faith. The right answer is that if he went deep enough into his faith, he would find everything he's seeking for. But he's not realized this and has not been taught to know it. It is the descent of mystical orders, 
more or less secretly perpetuated as an oral tradition held only by a few that has made possible this great resurgence of modern mysticism of today. Until religion solves the problem of spiritual ignorance, it cannot lead us economically, industrially, politically, or socially towards a state that is conformable with the divine purpose of things. In the last analysis, all truth-seeking is motivated by the impulse that if truth is found and applied naturally to all the works of man, the result will be universal peace, happiness, and security. To find these mysteries, the old philosophers said that in days of darkness, when the world was not particularly open to spiritual things, the only solution for security was to remain discreet. The old alchemists in their cellars and garrets working with the spiritual mystery of life realized that only a small percentage of mankind could understand the findings. However, if one person did discover the truth, that one person would become a monument of strength in society and gradually leaven the loaf. The Gnostic symbols include the lion-headed serpent taken directly from Egyptian legends. One of the most important symbols on their gems was the god Harpocrates, represented as a small child with a finger to his lips, seated on a lotus. This was the god of discretion. Things which are sacred must not be profaned. That which is intended for the wise and the virtuous must not be cast before swine. Harpocrates represented discretion not only as necessary to protect the individual against persecution, but to prevent the rise of confusion around him and within him. The moment the individual tells more than he should, his own position is complicated. He should gain sufficient insight to know when to speak and when to remain silent. Harpocrates represented discretion, also the right of the individual to the mystery of his own inner life. This deity was placed in the proper temples and it was finally said that it represented, keep quiet while you're on the inside, do not talk in church. However, the real meaning was, you are entering a sacred space. Be discreet about what you learn here. If this is followed out, the meditational discipline, which is the symbol of the temple, is properly carried on. To enter the temple is always to enter a state of communion with the deity. To sit upon the prayer rug, as the Muslims do, is to enter into the sanctuary. The prayer rug is the magic carpet. It's the symbol of magic for it carries the individual from this world to the other through the meditational process always seeking inward, always working to penetrate the veils between the obvious and the real, always seeing in nature a fragment of the eternal and recognizing that every form that exists in the world is in some way a symbol of something deeper, leads to enlightenment. The universe is the great mandala. Within the universe, places of worship have been built, the great churches, cathedrals, and temples. These are the symbols of the universe, and in the midst of these symbols stands man himself. He is the symbol of both the cathedral and the universe, 
and has been able because of the consciousness within himself to create the church as the symbol of the universe. He has intentionally put together a pattern on which he's based his understanding and insight of the universal pattern in which he exists. Therefore, man's mind is capable of capturing the archetype and making new applications of it. He's capable of presenting the material world in the form of a church, just as he's also capable of experiencing the divine will as the great cathedral. Because man has this power within himself to interpret, to open the gates, to solve the riddle of the Sphinx, to come gradually into the possession of all knowledge, he's represented as the magician, the sage, the saint, and the scholar. He is the Gurnamans to Percival. He's the one who's forever the old teacher, the archetypal symbol, and he's also the personification of the mysteries. He is the Gnostic, the Neoplatonist, the Platonist and the Pythagorean. He's the Christian saint and the pagan savior. Essentially, he is the archetypal wisdom within which can be reached by internal meditation and contemplation. That which can be reached becomes the instructor, instructing not in the form of words, but in the form of inner experiences which are irrefutable, the mystical illumination. This marks the end of our reading of The Wisdom of the Knowing Ones by Manly P. Hall. It's my hope that by listening to this, it has illuminated something in you. It's my hope that by listening to this, you can see just a bit more clearly the interconnectedness of all spiritual traditions, the oneness, and the importance of cultivating a relationship with your own inner life. Freeing yourself of any toxic shame that may have been foisted upon you by organized religion and understanding that the kingdom of heaven is within you. You can come up with your own spiritual truths. After all, that is what the greatest adepts in the world instructed us to do. Know thyself. Go within. Listen to the still, small voice within your own heart. But in order to do so, you must cultivate that silence. So now, I will leave you for a few minutes just with the sound of these solfeggio frequencies so that you can perform a small meditation to integrate what we've discussed here today. I'm sending all of the love in my heart directly to yours. Now enjoy the sound of the frequencies. Until next time.
Thank you for venturing into the unknown with me. Full details about the selected text are available in the episode description. Selected readings are for the purpose of research and study, entertainment and discussion. The views and opinions expressed in the included readings belong to the original authors and creators and may not necessarily reflect my own. The episode description also contains links that will allow you to join the community on social and support the continued production of this podcast. Don't forget to follow the show on your favorite podcast player so you're alerted when new episodes are released. In a wonderland they lie, dreaming as the days go by, dreaming as the summers die, ever drifting down the stream, lingering in the golden gleam, life What is it but a dream? Night, night, babe.